everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of June 18th, 2021. This is Charles Hain, writer for No Film School. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Good morning, or whatever time it is. Filmmaker and writer, Kath Tolentino. Hello. We're going to be talking about the scam that everyone loved, MoviePass. We're going to be talking about, in tech news, sort of the most exciting news in drones in a while, which is Sony moving into drones with AirPeak. And we're going to wrap it all up with a return of one of our favorite pandemic subjects, which has been Deep Cuts, where we share with you guys a little bit about movies that might be slightly lesser seen, but we think are worth taking a look at. And the theme this week is Black Filmmakers' slightly lesser known films in honor of Juneteenth. So, top story this week. There was a big article breaking down the deep scam that is MoviePass. So, if you don't remember MoviePass, it is either because you were too old or too young, but if you were in the right age bracket for it, MoviePass was an amazing deal where you bought a monthly pass and you could see infinite movies. The people I knew who were like single or in a couple but had no kids, were I knew people seeing five movies a week, six movies a week, because once you paid your monthly MoviePass fee, you could see infinite movies. Now, No one could figure out how this worked because none of the movie theaters were on board. It wasn't like AMC was part of this. Regal wasn't part of this. You took a photo of your ticket and you got reimbursed for the ticket. So it was some weird uh, movie pass kept saying, like, we're making money on data, which is, you know, sometimes true. Like Instagram and Facebook do make money on data because with all that data, they can target ads at you. And man, I've gotten some targeted Instagram ads lately that are so accurate. I got a targeted Instagram ad for a uh, Gatling gun that blows bubbles that like, man, Instagram (laughs) knows that I have a daughter who is in prime bubble age. They sent me a pink one. They know like, like it was so targeted at me and I bought it without even thinking. And my daughter really loves it. It's super fun. Oh my God, you bought Um, it from the ad. It's the first thing that's happened to me, but it was just so good. I also got it and like I paid $30 for it and it's like an $8 toy. So, you know, good on you, Instagram ad person who made $20 more than you should have selling me that toy. You know, that's that's how you make money off data, right? Whoever paid to place that ad paid Instagram $5 in order to put that ad in front of me in a hyper-targeted way when they knew I was susceptible to it. No one could really figure out what movie pa- movie cast kept saying, like, we're going to make money on data. And everyone kept being like, well, okay, but they're already in a movie theater. So the people who can make the most money off of that are the movie theaters selling them popcorn and Mike and Ike's. And they already know who's there and they already have tracking and reward systems. You're already like an Alamo Gold member or an AMC super fan or whatever. So how are you going to make money on data? Like, how is this going to work? And if you don't know about this, so a lot of companies start with something called venture capital. And venture capital is investment companies that are out there that they're looking for 10x return. They're looking for like big growth opportunities. And they're willing to put a tremendous amount of money into something that doesn't make any money, but that might make money in the future, right? That's how we work forever survived is they had, you know, venture capital from SoftBank that would keep pumping money in, even though we work was obviously a money losing proposition for a long time. And AMC had venture money that, I mean, um, MoviePass had venture money that was around, that was letting them, like literally you were getting venture capitalist money straight into your pocket. If you bought a MoviePass and then you saw like 30 movies that month, 
the money coming back to you was coming from the original investors, <laughs> flowing through to all the users. And what was fun about this article is that you really finally got to see the inside of what happens when a company is falling apart. And the reason why we call this a scam, because it wouldn't be a scam if they'd ever figured out how to make money. The reason why we were safely calling AMC a scam now is because, oh my God, all of the emails leaked from the inside teams of people being like, they deny knew. this claim, deny that claim. Like they were just looking for every shitty opportunity to like not respond to customer emails, slow down processes, flag thing, like any little tiny thing they could flag you on, they would flag you on, which is a scam. Here's what's crazy about the, like having read uh, our post about it on website, uh, but just like, I didn't use MoviePass, but so many people I knew did. And yes, they seem to be of the single variety and they loved it. And so MoviePass realized that they couldn't make money because of these high usage users. They were, <laughs> they were a problem. They weren't, it's like that thing, you know, when you go to the, when you, a gym makes money off the people who don't show up. Like the the person who goes to the gym and uses their membership and is there every day and puts a lot of wear and tear on the weights and makes sure you have to clean everything and like whatever it is, like makes the machines break. Those people are not your best customers. Your best customers are the ones who have a membership that never use it. And I think that is ultimately, even though that's also kind of a scam, that's not illegal. I think that is how the business, how the business was designed to work. The problem was there were a certain number of people who like loved this idea, saw no downside, used it like crazy. And it basically like MoviePass, I think was hoping that everyone would buy it and only a few people would use it. But either way, the FTC exposed that the, 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 the high usage people were targeted by MoviePass and MoviePass basically screwed up their apps, invalidated their passwords, slowed their usage rates, and like screwed them up. They were like trying to sabotage the high usage users. It would be like if you found a way to like take a crowbar to the legs of the gym user who's there all the time so they can't come as often, essentially. And then once that's exposed, you know, that's it. I feel like maybe it's because I just go don't go to the gym that much, but to me, the movie pass offer was just like such a better deal. Like it seemed so ridiculous that you could just use, you could go to as many movies as you want for this incredibly low price. And it, so I feel like the, the average person would just like naturally exploit that. Oh yeah. No, I agree. I wasn't intending to suggest that the gym is a similar deal. It's definitely not. Like they've figured out that business model. So even if you do go all the time, they can afford. Like I just I think what's crazy about MoviePass to me is that they didn't stop and say, like, what if a lot of people use this all the time? Would we be okay? Right. To me, <laughs> like, it, it, like it, obviously no. <laughs> it really feels like like the fire festival of apps. Like the, how did they not foresee what was going to happen? It seems like they were just like, let's just freaking do this. Cause it'll be so cool without even thinking about like how completely flawed their business plan was, or like, you know, they didn't have one basically. They didn't have a working business plan. So yeah, I'm, it's hilarious. I'm actually about to slightly defend MoviePass for two seconds. And my defense is this. Nobody who does anything cool actually knows how it's going to work. 
Like when you like Kath, right now you're setting out to like produce a movie and like you have a model of a whole bunch of other people produce movies, but like there will be some magic that comes together to make that movie happen. There will be some weird mystery coincidence that we do because we're passionate and we care about these things. And like when I go back and I think about like when I started my first post house, which then grew into a production company, which like, you know, still in business, making TV shows for Netflix, getting uh, winning Oscars for short films. Like when I first started that, if I knew how little I knew of what I needed to know, I would never have done it. But there's this thing that happens where you set out to do a thing where you're like, I'm going to build a production company. I'm just going to figure it out. And like, you get sleepless and you do it and you build it and it grows and it becomes a thing. And like, that's part of it. So yeah, like, like at some like point the Theranos, in the past, I, like the Theranos story, right? <laughs> yeah. But the, the key moment is the moment when you realize it's not real, right? Cause every business you're like, every business seems crazy when you start it. And then as it starts to grow and you start to get clients and you start to figure it out, there, there are moments where you're like, oh, should we slow it down? Should we stop doing this? Should we start doing that? Like, what are the ethical things? And at some point, and it must have been early in Theranos and MoviePass, at some point, there was a line they crossed where they were like, oh, in order to survive, we have to start doing this thing that's dickish. At which point you should stop. At which point you should just stop your business once you start after having to do dickish shit to survive. But at the very beginning they probably thought they might have figured out something cool. And like, that is a thing. Like there are so many other businesses that it would be hard to see the difference at the very beginning either. So I think I it's part of, of the journey where you start having to do dickish shit, which is when you're supposed to stop. Like $10 I- a month. Is so, <laughs> it's like, like it's just less than, than one a, ticket. A, yes, and there's no like sign up fee. Like that is completely nuts. Like I think that what I like about Charles's point, even though I agree with Kath on the economics and how it, it really makes no sense, is that I have often thought that one of the things there's there's room. I may get pushback on this, but there's romanticism of like the daring greatly or like making kind of a foolish dream big and all that sort of stuff. Cliche. I think sometimes you can be a little too smart for success. If, especially in Hollywood, and I'm not implying that successful people are not smart, but you can overthink or outthink. Like if you draw conclusions about where you're headed sometimes, especially with creative endeavors that are illogical to begin with, like there's nothing about, you know, trying to make a movie, for example, that's really a smart, it's not a smart money bet. Like it's not a smart investment. The odds are always bad. So if you think any of it through that way, you're likely to, de- to determine like, why am I doing this? Like, what are, what are my odds of success? On the other hand, you know, it's like people who buy a lottery ticket. And I think that with MoviePass, what I'm not, I'm not saying I feel this way about MoviePass, but I do think there's a little bit of a like, you kind of jump in with what feels like a really good idea or a good deal. And if you think about those things for too long, like what Charles is saying, I think is true. You may de- determine like, this is a dumb idea. Like, but then sometimes the dumb <laughs> ideas is the one that like blows up and that's how you get like an Amazon or whatever. Like maybe Amazon was a dumb idea at first, probably was initially. So anyway, I mean, I, I sort of feel you there, Charles. I just, I do think like with MoviePass, I wonder, I guess, when they started it, if they had a thought about what it could be 
if what what they thought was the likely, you know, like tons of people use this. Like, I, I wonder what the model or the projections looked like. I guess that's what I'm saying. That that worked. That where they didn't have to do the dickish thing. I mean, that's that is true. I when I started like- a production company. There was a model of like, oh, we'll do these jobs and this will be our profit margin and we'll do color grading and we'll pay the colors this hour and we'll charge this. There were ideas of how we would make sense. And actually, I think I'm going to agree with both of you guys that like, what was ever the plan where this would actually, did they ever have like a uh, data client lined up where they were like, oh, if we have this data, what will you pay for it? Or was it like an underpants gnome where they're like, step one, collect all the data. Step two, question mark. Step three, profit. Where you're like, oh, we don't actually have a client for any of this data. I do remember not signing up because I read that they like the big piece of data would be that they'd be tracking you everywhere you go, like your your location a hundred percent of the time. I don't I don't I haven't fact checked that, but I remembered seeing that and I was like, um, no app is like worth that. I that's how I personally feel. Um but yeah, even with like location data, I, I'm kind of curious. Like, is that as valuable as like other types of data that um, you know other companies are collecting? I don't know. I mean, it. Yeah, it. Like, yeah. I think we've, I think we've discussed thoroughly the scam that was MoviePass. My favorite bit of relief from it was watching the inside of a company when they admitted like we've all had shitty customer uh, service experiences where I'm like, Oh wow, this company really doesn't care about customer service. And it was really nice to read these email exchanges and be like, Oh, this is beyond not caring. You're deliberately doing shitty customer service in order to hopefully get us to quit because we're costing you too much money because we're the high maintenance clients and you're going to teach the high, you're going to treat the high maintenance clients worse. And it was really nice to see that confirmed. To be like, oh, that thing I've always expected, suspected to be true is true. Um, <laughs> and you know what? Frankly, it is, uh, it's a relief that they couldn't make the money off the data. That there wasn't enough of a market for the data for them to go away. That's nice, yeah. right? Yes. It's something, for sure. Your career in virtual production starts here and now. Earn your spot on tomorrow's set with Synapse Virtual Production in LA by enrolling in RIT's immersive 10-day course this June. An exclusive experience in LA, you'll get the foundation you need to grow your career in a virtual production studio, the kind behind the groundbreaking effects seen in Disney's The Mandalorian and Marvel's Avenger films. Limited seats are available. Learn more and enroll today at vpritcertified.education. That's vp.ritcertified.education. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. All right, moving on. Next subject in tech news. We're going to talk about a new drone from Sony called the AirPeak S1, which I think 
The drone market, if you, I'll just give a little overview of the drone market, a little context. If you don't know, there's one name in drones and it's DJI. There's technically Unique and Parrot and a few others, but for the most part, for motion picture use, I'm not talking industrial use, for motion picture use, it's DJI. They are everywhere. They are on the fastest release cycle. They have the slickest tech. If you want to buy like a little thousand dollar drone to keep with you all the time to like get random drone shots of every shoot you do, you know, that something like the Mavic Air 2S, or if you want, you know, like something a little slicker, you can go up to like the Inspire, which is like 2300. Or if you want to like fly an Alexa or a Red, you can spend, I think it's six to eight grand to buy a Matrix, you know, and you've got really, really, really good imagers. They bought Hasselblad. They're working with Hasselblad Image Science. They're the top. Another big company, GoPro, tried to move in on it with the Karma drone. A few years back, they fell from the sky. They were quickly pulled from market. If GoPro had some big evil in their past, we would call this karmic justice. The real (laughs) truth is it's just hard to make things fly in the air. It just is. It is an order of magnitude different. DJI has special specialization. In it. They have 11,000 employees, of which like, I think more than half are R&D. Like, they are very focused on making things fly. So another big player that doesn't tend to lose, moving into the space is interesting, and that's Sony. And when I say doesn't tend to lose, everybody who grew up in the 80s remembers the big war between VHX and uh, Betamax that Sony lost. And ever since, if Sony comes, they, ton- they, they tend to come to play. Meaning when there was a war between DVD and Blu-ray, everyone was like, oh, Sony will lose again. But Sony played the game much better than they had with VHX versus Betamax. And Blu-ray won out and beat HD DVD, which is something most of you have probably never heard of. And Blu-ray is still sort of the disc video standard. And when Sony moves in on spaces, they really very aggressively move in on those spaces. They moved in on the still camera market with the Alpha line, which were like three or four years ahead of everybody else in terms of full-frame mirrorless cameras. And like, frankly, is still the camera that most owner operators I know own, right? Like if I'm, if I have to do a three camera shoot and I'm like, oh, I want them to match. I usually am going to end up on Sony just because when I start calling around to the owner operators, I want to bring out most of them are going to have Sony. And frankly, with the alpha one, which we just did a hands-on review and the a seven S three, the autofocus is so good. It's so good. It's, it's like, uh, I was just on a shoot with someone who was like, it's like black magic. And they meant like magic, like they hired a magician, not like black magic cameras, which don't have autofocus. And it was a, it was just a very funny moment on set because he was we forgot he forgot for a moment that black magic is not just magical arts, but also the name of a camera company. You know that is amazing. Yeah, to be there. I don't I don't think it's actually <laughs> funny in a podcast, but I got a little laugh out of Kath, so that's all that matters. So Sony's moving in on drones and. That might be worrying for DJI, although I don't know. They're probably pretty confident after they destroyed GoPro, but it's going to be good for us. And here's why. Their first drone is all about taking that A7S III you own or the Alpha One or even your A7S II or your A- A7R4 or whatever, any of your recent Alpha mirrorless cameras and flying it. So it's literally taking the exact same camera you're shooting on the ground and flying it in the air which you can do with DJI, with the Matrix line. but And the reason why this is great is because if you're a filmmaker, you ideally want all of, if at all possible, you want all your footage from the same camera because it's going to match the most easily in post. And it's it's something, like as a colorist, I'm so used to like, I'm going to have to spend more time on the drone shots because no matter how good they look, they don't look the same as the ground shots. 
I'm going to have to spend a little time matching if it's like Airy on the ground and DJI in the sky or whatever, I'm going to have to massage them together. But if it's Alpha 1 on the ground and Alpha 1 in the sky, you'd like... You, you have to color grade them, of course, but you're not going to have to massage them together. They're going to match. And Sony has been packing crazy features into their cameras lately. Like all of their recent cameras have internal gyro stabilization sensors, like what you have in your iPhone uh, that knows its orientation. And they do this for like post stabilization. But now the drone can take advantage of that. That works together with the other sensors in the drone to help make the footage more stable. There's also altimeters and barometers and all sorts of stuff in the air peak. And one of the big things they're really pushing is it's going to be super fast, way faster than you're going to get out of a lot of other drones at the lower price points. It's definitely like a speed drone, but it's also super repeatable, which is great for industry, right? If you're inspecting electrical towers and you want to run the same route every year so you can compare year to year how the electrical towers are holding up. It's great for that. But it's also great for filmmakers. If you want to get like a really cool time-lapse shot of a cityscape that changes from winter to spring, you can fly run one route in winter, save that route, then go up and fly it again in spring and then cross dissolve between the two. And there's so much precision coming from the uh, GNSS, the GPS signal that it's using and all of the other sensors it's using that you should be able to cross dissolve between the two shoots and it just looks like you're transitioning from winter to spring. That's, so that's pretty cool amazing. Does, do any of the yeah. other drone companies offer that? So the DJI does stuff like that where you can record your, like DJI definitely has that feature. It is a useful feature, but the key to making it work is precision. That is the key. And so if you want that to work, you need as many different sensors as possible, you know, and the ultimate buzzword, machine learning, the machine learning algorithms, man, it shows up in every other press release I read, of AirPeak are helping to integrate all that data to make it a more precise flight path. You're going to be able to get that level of precision out of an Inspire 2 and a, a Matrix. You'll probably get something close to that level of precision out of some of the smaller drones. But, you know, you really want like exactly the same shot as you can get it because it's going to give you that beautiful transition. If the shots are slightly different, you can usually like futz around with the shot and post to make the transition work. But you're, you know, we've all been there in that thing where you're like, I'm fixing a time lapse or something. And you're like repositioning every shot or both the shots and you're like stretching them to try and make them match. And it's way easier if it's just like, oh, it's the exact same shot matches perfectly from time to time. And. Sony's really pushing this tech. Like it's very much like built into their software that you can save certain runs and you can say, I want to repeat this run from six months ago or something like that. And I think that, you know, pushing that precision, pushing that repeatability. And frankly, I don't think these are as likely to fall from the sky as the GoPros were. Is but these, my guess. these aren't out yet, right? Like they're still just releasing like, September. trailers basically. Okay. So what this was, the announcement this week is they're shipping in September and our price point's 9000 bucks. So that's, that's what this week's news is about. But with that announcement, a lot of footage came out. And, it, you know, unsurprisingly, it looks really good because an Alpha 1 and an A7S or an FX3, all of those are beautiful-looking cameras that do great shit. So it's, it's unsurprising that when you fly it, it works. That is a lot of money, but it's a pretty cool thing. <laughs> yeah, how does that compare? Yeah, I mean, this is going to be a this is going to be a rental. I mean, it's more expensive than any of the DJI units that it's comparing to. But there, I think the argument that they would make is we've got way more sensors and way tighter integration with our camera, right? If you go for like an Inspire, the twenty three hundred dollar camera from DJI, 
it's a DJI camera, so the integration is really great, but it's a much smaller sensor. If you want to fly a full-frame sensor, a big sensor, uh, not like a medium-format sensor, but a full-frame sensor, which is very popular these days, you have to go for a matrix, which is like six to eight grand, depending upon setup. I think it can get up even above 10 grand, depending upon how you set it up. In, and then you have to fly. But the integration between that and the camera is not going to be as tight. You know, your Alexa is not sending data to the Matrix drone that's going back to the Alexa that's helping everything work together. It's really the integration here. If you want to fly full-frame drone work and you already own a Sony, this is actually a pretty good price point because the integration between all the data at the sensor level and the drone level are going to work together to make for some pretty dynamic shots. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, I don't think DJI is going to go anywhere anytime soon. And if I'm honest, my experience of Sony, Sony has only started to make really nice, in my opinion, I've only started to like the color of high-end Sony stuff recently. For a long time, I always thought the colors looked a little weird on the higher-end Sony stuff, and I always shot more Panasonic or Aerie. However, in the last two or three years, I have to admit, the Alpha 1 looks great, the A7S 3 looks great, the FX3 looks great, and the FX9 looks great. Even Venice looks good. So the top-end stuff, the consumer stuff still looks weird. So if they expand the AirPeak line, and they have like a competitor to the Inspire at like $2,000 or a competitor to Mavic. I don't know how you would do that. I don't know that anyone else could make what DGA makes for $1,000. Like the expertise and the experience and the volume that goes into the $1,000 DJI Mavic is hard to compete with. But my guess is also it's going to look weird and Sony-like in its images. That's just my guess. I'm putting that prediction out here first is that I don't, I don't know if Sony is even going to try and compete at that price point because... TJ, I mean, I would be fascinated to see what they would try and do to compete at that price point. I think it would be really hard to come at DJI there now. A thousand is significantly less, yes. Well, and at a thousand, you start seeing a lot of people just owning, you know, I've worked with a lot of people who just like own an Air 2S and it stays in their car all the time. And then and then you're out there on a scout and you're like, oh, hey, I wonder what the overhead is like. And they like fly it up and you're looking at an overhead and then you're talking about where you could place things and you're doing blockings and like, you know, it becomes a different kind of tool. It right. becomes a, I have it always with me tool, as opposed to the, you know, I have a specific need to do something complicated tool where, mm-hmm. you know, the AirPeak is going to be a owner operator rental thing. It's not going to be, I would be shocked if I knew anyone who just like owned one and kept it in the back of their van. <laughs> <laughs> Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Up next, we are going to wrap up with Deep Cuts. So Deep Cuts is where we all talk a little bit about a film on a specific subject that we think is slightly obscure. It doesn't have to be the most obscure thing ever. Like I did this 
in records once somebody was like playing me some deep cuts and I played like this stuff I have on vinyl that I'm 100% confident is not available digitally. That's like deep cuts, deep cuts. We, we don't need to go that deep. It should be stuff that people can see. But like as we continue to be at home and have a lot of stuff, uh, have an infinite array of streaming options, we wanted to just sort of point out some things. And this week it's going to be um, underappreciated works by black filmmakers in honor of this coming weekend, Juneteenth. Anybody want to go first? Yeah. I feel like this movie is maybe not necessarily underappreciated, but is maybe at a point where some folks like haven't seen it or haven't heard of it. It came out back in 2011. It's Dee Reese's first movie, Pariah. What I love about this film, so it's about a young black lesbian teenager living in Brooklyn who is just like navigating her sexual identity and dealing with like coming out to her family. And it's like just a beautiful, thoughtful, like coming of age film and premiered at Sundance in 2011. And what I love about it, like beyond just the film, which is like a really lovely film and just like a great watching experience. Dee Reese made the first 30 minutes of the film as her film school thesis project and then used it to get funding to make the rest. Um, which I think is just like such an admirable way of making a film and like a really smart way to do things. Of course, she like lucked out because that first, you know, 30 minutes of it, I think also went to Sundance. And that's like how she was able to drum up um, a lot of interest in it. But I just like, I, I love that method. and think that it was like a very smart way to go about making your first film. Trying to see where you can watch it right now. Oh, it's on Netflix. There you go. Check it out. Nice. Uh, I also got to say, it's really impressive she managed to do that because, you know, I mean, the dream is always, I make the film school short and then the film school short turns into my feature, but it's actually narratively really hard to do. Like the ideas that make sense in, in 10 to 15 minute chunks don't always make sense at 90 minutes. And once you've got a 90 minutes that works, finding the right 30 minutes that also makes a good short is really hard. So the fact that, you know, the general advice is always try and shoot the first act or the last act of your feature as a short to get it made. And the fact that she successfully like followed that advice, shot the first act, got into Sundance and turned into a feature is amazing. So that is fantastic. Yeah, I have not seen Pariah and I will go check it out now. When you watch, like when I watch the film, I don't see where that line it's like i don't see the seam anywhere you know what i mean like they really pulled it off and made it feel like it was just all shot at the same time which is cool i could go because mine kind of tags onto that there aren't a lot of movies about juneteenth itself but the movie miss juneteenth is kind of about juneteenth itself it's in the title if you want to know more about what juneteenth is and you didn't know this movie gives you a pretty good sense it was made by Channing Godfrey Peoples. She wrote and directed it. I actually had her on the podcast, so you can find that episode. It was called Miss Juneteenth, Writer Director Shows Us How to Beat the Odds because she had a really crazy story. She had a very young child with uh, her partner, who was a producer on the film. While they were shooting, she was pregnant during the process. It was a short. They were at USC together when she came up with what the short was. They went out and, and shot it in the neighborhood where it took place. It's a very personal story. It was a very buzzy, popular film, and I highly recommend it. Um, and I highly recommend the podcast as well. 
but also because it's another one of those examples, like you were just talking about, of a filmmaker who had the short. And I, I like it because it fulfills that narrative we have of like, bet it, bet big on your idea and your passion and your voice and the story you can tell and tell that story. And it worked. And so it's always nice to see one of those happen and be good too. All right, so I'll wrap it up. This is not actually someone's film school project turned feature, although this person did a project in <laughs> film school that theme. is one of the... Yeah, well, but continuing the theme, so I want to I'm talk joking. about a Charles Burnett film. So most people know Charles Burnett for Killer of Sheep. If you haven't seen Killer of Sheep, you should go watch it. It was a UCLA project turned feature film. Yeah, Killer of Sheep is so good. Everybody should go watch it. It's phenomenal. Charles Burnett went on to make a whole bunch of other projects that don't always get as much attention as I think they deserve. And one that I really wanted to call out that is one of my favorites that I, th- I still think about all the time is called The Glass Shield from 1994, starring Michael Boatman and Lori Petty. A lot of people love Lori Petty for uh, Tank Girl, but she's also great in this and a bunch of other 90s movies. And uh, The Glass Shield is just about sort of race and policing and the... You know, uh, Michael Boatman plays a black deputy in the L.A. Sheriff's Department, who's sort of the first black deputy in his unit. Lori Petty is the first female deputy in the same unit. And it is about the um, tendency of police forces to have racial bias issues within the force and to attempt to how some police forces are not welcoming places for all cops and uh, what happens when there are bad apples in a barrel, which is that the other apples are in, are induced to rot. That's what the expression is. A few a few bad apples ruin the bunch. Yeah, the glass shield is really great. You know, it's one of those movies. I think I watched it first eight or ten years ago, or and uh, it's one of those movies that, like, at the time when I first watched it, and at the time it was made, it felt like very like yes, this, these are like this is like this movie rules. And then you think about it in terms of the last couple of years, and you're like. You know, a lot of the things people are very angry about right now are not new and are not news. Like people were aware of them. People have been talking about them and it's about getting them in the conversation. And so like, I'm really interested in new work about it, but also like remembering that people have been making movies about these subjects for a long time and trying to get the message out, I think is really important. And Glass Shield is also just like a solid movie. Boatman's great. Larry Petty's great. I think it is like thoroughly worth a watch. So that is my deep cut this week. I am really excited awesome. to see that having, you know, being one of those people that's only seen Killer of Sheep. That sounds like a great movie. Yeah, I mean, he he plays around with some sort of B-movie cliches in a way that's fun. Like, it's a cop movie. It's very much a cop movie, but it's a very much a cop movie that's dissecting some of the bigger things going on in America while being a cop movie pretty awesome cinematography is very 90s in a way that i really love so yeah totally flash shield all right guys that is this week's no film school podcast you can check me out online at charleshane.com or on instagram and twitter at charleshane and i am kath tolentino i'm on instagram at borderwoman.pictures and you can also find me online at katherinetolentino.com and I'm George Gentleman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. You can find all the things we talked about and more at nofilmschool.com. Please rate, like, and subscribe to the podcast. Send us questions at editor at nofilmschool.com or leave them in the boards or you know, tweet them at us or put them on our Facebook page. 
Be sure to follow us on Twitter and like our Facebook page. Check out our Instagram. We're doing cool stuff over there too. And thanks so much for listening.